You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Well, hello there, Sasha. Hello there, Stella. Today is going to be a very interesting episode. We, we're trying to cover... Uh, the recent updates from the WPATH Standards of Care 8, which was recently published, we're recording this at the beginning of October 2022. And we, I wanted to start out by just kind of giving the listener an idea of where we're going today, because this is a humongous document of really significant importance with serious flaws. And we do not expect that this episode is going to be a kind of end-all and be-all analysis, but there are certain things we want to touch on. So we want to talk about how WPATH standards of care are kind of used in the clinic, clinical population, why it's important. We're going to go over the history of the organization, who they are, where they came from, and how they've kind of appointed themselves as this authority on something really, really important. We're going to talk about just what the tone of the document is like, what it's like to read it. It definitely has a glossy, impressive feeling to it. But then we're going to dig into some of the specific things we've noticed and that lots of people are noticing, which are frankly shocking and kind of position WPATH as kind of a fringe organization when you discover some of the the ways they are talking about these really serious uh, identity issues, body modifications, etc. So this, again, we can't cover everything. We, we don't expect that we are going to catch every important aspect of this, but this is just kind of a, a, an overview, and we're going to point out some of the things we noticed. Does that seem about right, Stella? Yeah, very impressive. I'm looking Thank forward you. to it. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, so, okay, well, let's start with why the SOC matters, standards of care. So we're going to call it SOC 8, right? That's the abbreviated term you'll hear us use, standards of care 8. Um, for me, what comes to mind is like when I uh, in communication with a clinician who gender is not their main area of specialty, um, or if it is, but I mean, especially if it's not, and they're trying to figure out what to do with a patient or a client who's having gender distress. They reference the WPATH standards of care. This is what they believe is the most scientifically rigorous, accurate, and um, important document in terms of how do you work with somebody who's got any kind of gender-related complaint, whether they're a child, whether they're adults, whether they want to medicalize or not, this WPATH standards of care document is what people turn to. So it's really important. Yeah, the thing about it is, and you know, Stephen Levine really nailed it when he talked about the chain of trust, which I'm almost obsessed with. But um, it's very much, it has become a, a, a 
what's the word inevitable that when you talk to government figures, when you talk to schools, when you talk to doctors or clinicians, they will somehow be influenced by WPATH. And they often don't actually even know they're influenced by WPATH. They feel that they were following established guidelines that have worthy science and a kind of a very strong substance behind them. And so they come from this confident point. And then when you look at it, you'll see all roads lead to WPATH. And then you read WPATH. And it took me when I first got involved in gender, it took me some years. I know some people can do it very quickly. I didn't. I just kept on, you know, seeing that they were well referenced and therefore presuming everything was right and and proper. And it took me a while to realize, no, 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 you have to read the, the references because they're making huge leaps of logic in these references. And that took me some time. And then realizing it's like you're un- uncovering something and then you're uncovering it. And then what's at the what's at the core is clay. There yeah. was very little substance at the back, uh, in the middle of it. And that was horrifying to me. And I think I remember, I'm sure I've said it before, like people have said to me that they couldn't believe that this would be true. And so they kept on thinking there must be substance, there must be science, because surely not all the, like in Ireland, let's say the programme for government references WPATH very, very happily, all about these, you know, you know, gold standard, um, the gold standard guidelines, which don't even meet the criteria for standards of care, that there's an official, standards of care is not just a moniker, it's not a descriptor. Standards of care is an official kind of hoops you have to jump through to become standards of care and they don't reach them they they are self-identified standards of care and they are they call themselves the clinton the world you know the world professional association of transgender health and because they call themselves that and because they call it a standards of care and because it's very glossy it has ended up everywhere and all roads every single thing to do with gender i think ends up really with these standards of care. Right. That's the way I see it. Right. It's such a good point because even before we got on the call, I said, gosh, I'm a little nervous to record this episode because it's such a dense document. And in order to really pick it apart would probably take us the rest of our lives, literally, because every other line is, is, is a citation referenced to somewhere. And what I noticed reading through it carefully is that, you know, I'm probably familiar with you know, a handful of the papers, like really familiar with a handful of the papers they reference. And with those handful of papers that I know well, they really misinterpreted what was said in those papers. So we'll touch on that as we talk about their interpretation of Littman's research, of um, Pablo Exposito's paper on detransition. The few papers that I knew intimately, they got very, very wrong. Mm. And I doubt that that is a fluke, right? I, I think that is probably true for a lot of the claims that they make. So it's it's really hard to think that an entire organization is full of individuals who are either careless about it or misrepresenting things accidentally or have some kind of political agenda which creates the the impulse to misrepresent or maybe they don't really know. I mean, I'm not sure what's going on exactly, but the the references do not often say what they claim that they say. Yeah, I I I think that it um it 
it's had a kind of an, an interesting evolution to become WPATH. You know what I mean? It didn't it didn't happen overnight. But I do think it was interesting. I'm just looking up this quote that Stephen Levine said about um, there it is. He said it in an episode when we we interviewed Stephen Levine and he, I'm quoting here from this. And he said, I was the chair of the fifth edition of the standards of care. So that's 1998. That's a long time ago. And we recommended two letters from two different professionals had to write letters to get hormones. And so they had a system and it was very, he felt at the time, he felt it was a scientific run organization. And the president of WPATH didn't like this. And he decided he couldn't unpublish Stephen Levine's fifth standard of care. So three years later, they produced a sixth standard of care. And that was 2001. And uh, in that, they reduced it and they said only one letter was necessary. And with that, Stephen Levine said, I couldn't stay there because when I was with that organisation, it was a scientific organisation trying to understand this phenomenon and what we should do about it. And so it it seems to me that in the last 20 years, it's it's lost its way. I think there was an awful lot of clinicians very much directing and being the authoritative voice. And it's very interesting. You know the way an awful lot to do with gender is the perfect storm of different things. The perfect storm of lived experience dismissing expertise is very strong in WSAP. And I would say, and you, you know, right up until today, there's quotes from people from WPAP doctors saying, oh, um, activists effectively shaped the corrections, the famous corrections that we'll be talking about later. It's. It seems to me that the, the 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 activists are certainly shaping this document. That's how I read it. I'm not saying there isn't great doctors there in the organisation. I'm not saying there's not not an awful lot of references, but it doesn't feel to me like this could be, on any level, considered a clinical guide that is being shaped by clinical ethical considerations. That's not. That's not the results. Put mm-hmm. it that way. It mm-hmm. might look like that. But it, it's not really, uh, it's not actually that when you look yeah. into And I think when we get into some of the specifics, specific chapters, that will be really obvious, you know, just reading through their recommendations. But maybe you can talk, uh, give a brief history, the kind of timeline of this organization and um, how it changed, how it evolved. Because I know we, we touched on this in episode six when we talked about medical interventions and maybe it's worth just a quick refresher. So can you, do you want to yeah. go through that? Yeah, you know, like the, you know, Helen Joyce's book was really good at talking about, you know, the origins of, of you know, trans transgender. And I think probably all throughout history, ever so often, there were people who really wanted to be the opposite sex. And, you know, medical science advanced and, you know, people, different people arrived with different theories. Charles Darwin was very established when Magnus Hirschfeld came in and said, oh, no, there isn't two sexes. There's three sexes, a three sex model. And the third sex was homosexual, according to Magnus Hirschfeld. Now, we're talking 120, uh, quite quite a long time ago, 120 or so years ago or even longer. And then Magnus Hirschfeld was very, very kind of central to the beginning of an evolving theory that, frankly, we're seeing today. So he coined the term transvestite in around about 1910. He opened the Institute for Sexual Science in 1918, 1919. That was key. This is in Europe. It hadn't really come, as far as I can see, it hadn't really come to America. Then Bob Ostertag was very interesting because he was talking about the origins of the, of the, you know, of figuring out 
estrogen and testosterone. So estrogen was discovered in the 1920s. Testosterone was discovered in the 1930s and they did nothing with it. Tried it on this, tried it on that, but they certainly weren't bringing it into medical transition. That was just a a kind of a side note that was happening, like left of field. You know, the first person who actually transitioned was in 1931. That was Dora Richter. And that was an actual sex assignment because nobody was talking about hormones being changing somebody over. It was all about medical assignment. Then when Alfred Kinsey, when he introduced the word transsexual to the mainstream in the 1940s, he was very definitely a kind of a key figure of starting to bring this into the mainstream. Harry Benjamin was, you know, endocrinologist. He is at the centre of everything, really. And he's an endocrinologist and a sexologist who kind of just got really involved into this. Now, you and I have studied Harry Benjamin, and he originally was like interested in this quack kind of uh, cure for tuberculosis and then got got sidetracked and got interested in in gender. Well, at the time it wasn't. It was called the transsexual. And he wrote the transsexual phenomenon in 1966. And I am going somewhere with this. I'm trying to go fast, but I am going somewhere because it was Harry Benjamin who started, who, who, who was, you know, God bless him. He was an amazing marketing man because in 1978, he brought together a loose affiliation of trans people, clinicians, professionals who were interested in bringing forth transsexual as a as ism as it was called then and he produced his first standards of care he called his organization the harry benjamin gender dysphoria harry benjamin international gender dysphoria association we are a we are a movement full of bad acronyms but this is probably the worst <laughs> hbgdi or something like that but the harry benjamin association was about 1978 he started 1979 he released his first standards of care 1980, he released another standards of care. 1981, he released another standards of care. So they were trying in their defence, they were trying. He was certainly very involved from the 60s onwards in transitioning people and helping people. And there was a heyday in the 60s and 70s of people transitioning. At this stage, it was very much males, not only, but it was very heavily. And then in 1981, it was very interesting that in America, where it was all centred by now, Medicaid got Basically, the human, the Department of Human Health and Services decided to ban Medicare for transition. They said this is an experimental treatment and we're not going to give Medicare. And that ban lasted from 1981 to 2014. And I personally think that it was pivotal in our understanding of everything. And so that was 1981. And there was a low, if you follow me, if you look at the numbers, if you look at everything, it wasn't quite as as high for some years. There was about 20 years. It was continuing on, but this is a fringe organization called the Harry Benjamin, you know, Gender Dysphoria Association. Like it's really very fringe. They would have all known each other. They would have gone to conferences with each other. I'm sure, you know, Ray Blanchard and people like that were were working away, coining the term autogynophilia. And somewhere in the 90s, they started marketing testosterone and marketing estrogen. And the idea of hormonal change was coming into a concept that that would be medical transition. And then you're getting into the kind of interesting time where Stephen Levine said he was the chair of the Committee of Standards of Care 5. And he seemed to be quite proud of it. It was a scientific organisation that the clinicians had flocked to this organisation, probably because of their work experience. And they ended up 
working in what this was, which was still the Harry Benjamin Association, and they were trying to bring in serious standards of care. And then activists started to overtake in the last 20 years. And clinicians sadly left. Now, whether they should have left or whether they should have stayed and fought, I I, I think is a really, I'd love to see the analysis of that because to me, that was pivotal. 20 years ago, clinicians backing out saying the activists have taken over frightens me on many levels. They renamed it finally in 2008, they renamed the Harry Benjamin Association to WPATH. That was really clever because calling yourself WPATH, they immediately centred themselves. They, They created themselves with that. And then in 2012, I would argue something pivotal happened, which is the Standards of Care 7 came out. And when the Standards of Care 7 came out, and, you know, within that year as well, they also changed gender identity disorder, which was named first in the DSM in 1980. They changed that in around about 2014 and they changed it to gender dysphoria. And Ray Blanchard is quoted as saying they did that to please the activists. He said this was a political decision. It wasn't a clinical decision. And that's in the National Review. I read it and I have it on front of me here. And so, again, you know, the, the, the politics, the, the activists were wagging the, the dog here in a big way. And when Standards of Care 7 came, I've really looked through, because I've been looking at, you've been looking at, we've all been looking at Standards of Care 7 for the last few years. And it has, it reshaped everything. And that's the beginning of the phenomenon that we now are in. 2012 is when the numbers start to creeping up. And, you know, what I mean, this, you know, all the uptick starts in and around then. And what they did, the big, huge game changer they did in, in the Standards of Care 7, 10 years ago, 2012, was they removed the need for a therapist to provide a therapeutic process. And instead, the therapist was basically demoted in, a, in one kind of slate of hand, demoted to being a facilitator for transition. And the only role we could have is to talk about the difficulties that they might have in accessing transition almost. You know what I mean? Nothing to do with actually what might be going on in the unconscious. And when you were speaking earlier, Sasha, you said what was so shocking about reading it, this is you saying it to me earlier, was it's just a done deal. There is no concept of might we perhaps think for a second why? somebody might want to medicalize for the rest of their life. That is just not, since 2012, I would argue that that question has been removed. And it was done, I would argue, for 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 ideological reasons, not clinicians. They would say, yeah, you're right. Get the clinicians out of here. And so that's fine. They can get the clinicians out of here. That's perfectly fine. And we'll, we'll talk about SOC 7 in a second. But I'm saying if they want to get the clinicians out of here, can they please remove themselves from all the clinics? Can they remove themselves from all these guides that are, that are, that are advising clinicians? And let's say that's a cultural document. Perfectly fine. Go and be a cultural document because that's what it is. It's not a clinical document. And I think that's what needs to be sang from the rooftops. Yes, I, I want to come back to this because um, I'm looking at some transcripts of a talk by Amy Tishelman, who was one of the authors of the child chapter. And she talks explicitly about um, not wanting to therapize kids, not wanting to tell kids that being cis is a better outcome. So they're explicitly trying to say, I think that 
It's really like saying, well, the body doesn't really matter at all, actually. And there is no medical burden, and it doesn't really matter if there are medical complications. The point is we don't want to pathologize being trans in any possible way. And so that goes right in line with what you're saying about getting the clinicians, getting the clinical questions, getting the clinical curiosity, getting the desire to affirm someone's natal sex to des the desire to affirm their body. Let's get that out of this entire process. Let's just affirm the identity. And that's why I said it feels so solipsistic and disconnected from just the grounded reality of being a human being on earth with like actual consequences to messing with our body. Like it's shocking. It's shocking that there are a huge number of medical providers sitting on these panels and listening to this unfold and you know that really shows up in the eunuch chapter too which we'll get to but i don't i don't want to jump ahead we will get to the eunuch chapter there's so many things to get to i did did search the word unconscious maybe out of because i'm a psychotherapist and i would and i couldn't find it now my search oh. My There's, I searched for a lot of words and couldn't find them too. I did say, yeah. okay. And I don't think any human on earth could deny there is an unconscious working away because, oh my God, we do some, we do some, some many things that would suggest that we have a live and kicking unconscious. So yeah, when Sock 7 came out, it went, came out, it took away the kind of the position of the therapist and I don't think much was said about it. I certainly wasn't talking about WPAT Sock 7 in 2012. <laughs> I would have just looked at your slack jawed if you'd brought it up because I didn't know anything about it. And I would say most people didn't know anything about it. And when I first discovered, you know, issues around gender, I, I was in weeds reading around, looking at that document. Standards of Care 7, I think I know very, very well because I looked at it so often going, what is going on? And now, a few years later, now I'm old and grey looking. I remember now why I was so lost, because so much of the language is very ideological. And so I can see why I was so lost. I can see why I was like so kind of ill at ease reading it, kind of going, what is this? And I've fallen into a world that I don't understand. And I'm a psychotherapist working years. Why am I so all over the place? And I can see now why I was. Because it's 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 a, a language-based movement, and this is a language-based document, and it's very clever and very polished and very confident, and I could see why young me a few years ago was totally at sea. I could see why anybody would look at that and say, "Oh yeah, that that's the gold standard." W. Patho, is that right? Sock eight, yeah, that's great. And off they go and they follow them. Hence, they're in government documents. They're everywhere. And um, we knew, of course, Standards of Care 8 was coming. We've known it was coming for many years. And they released a kind of a review in December, January this year. And there was a huge outcry. They asked for public response. And there was Unix. There was Unix in that. And I honestly thought they will not publish Unix. They, they, they know their marketing. They are not going to shoot themselves in the foot by doing that. And they also had a chapter in ethics. And um, in, in, in what I can only perceive now, I might be wrong and I invite people to argue, but I would feel that the activists certainly got very involved between December and September when they released 
the 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 official guidelines because they've removed the chapter on ethics and they kept in the chapter on Unix. Now to me that's a done deal. To me that okay, okay, that's that's officially the clinician's voice. They might have spoke up. I'm sure Laura Edwards Lieber made her voice known. I know Erica Anderson in fairness has really spoken up very well. In fairness you really couldn't um deny it. And I think they weren't listened to. I certainly know the feeling of coming up with great points and not being listened to. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. So we I mean SOC seven just happened to be this important d- cultural document, but released at a time when nobody was watching. Yes, nobody was paying attention. Point. Had that been released in this era There'd have been just as many articles, just as many comments, just as much trending on Twitters. But nobody was looking at it at the time. And so nobody was commenting. I don't know. I don't know. Which, I mean, it almost, I think it almost works in our favor to a degree because SOC 8, I would say, is a lot more fringe than SOC 7, even though SOC 7 was highly language-based and political and the clinical voice had been kind of extricated from it. But the inclusion of the Unix chapter in 8, I think, is so fringe and so shocking that maybe this will help to reveal just how out of touch WPATH is with the sensibilities of the average physician, mental health provider, clinician, I don't know. But then again, seeing people react to it in the live presentation that is available on Wesley Yang's uh, Substack was really shocking because none of the audience members had any objection whatsoever. And if anything, they were saying, how can I make myself more comfortable with (laughs) men who want to self-castrate for no apparent reason? You know, like it was... mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can I just say that that's an argument that let's say this is more fringe than ever. Another argument which might sound a little bit tin hat, tinfoil hat is that like when you look at Stephen Levine's shock 20 years ago where he was like, uh, you know, this, 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 the clinicians were basically pushed out. That's how he spoke about it, that he he really didn't feel this is a place for clinicians anymore. And then when you look at, you you could argue this was incredibly well orchestrated step by step by step. So they reduced like the need for letters. If you were a strategist and if you looked at it, you could say, wow, sometimes it looks quite strategic because in 2012, when they released Standards of Care 7, they did a few things. They took away the therapists, get rid of them, your facilitators from now on. So sit up and support. And then the gender affirmative care model in it arrived. And we could argue that the gender affirmative care model has psychologically been a takeover for, for the entire for everything. Because if you weren't following the gender affirmative care, and little did they know it was going to be so successful. But really, it, 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 you could argue then they could bring in anything they wanted. And if this strategy theory was correct, I would argue the next one, Standards of Care 9, would be completely fringe. A whole step further fringe, if you follow me. That's my own back theory. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when... When the kind of average rational person part of me reads through this, I want to believe this is so fringe that it's going to crack everything wide open. But then again, 
it's painfully obvious to me that there's a really strong component of kind of like social justice and power relations theory and all of that woven into it because you know centering the voices and experiences of the marginalized person while sounds like a really beautiful idea on the surface creates the kind of situation where a bunch of individuals who probably have really complicated mental health issues, paraphilias, want to self-castrate, and their voices are being treated as though these are the people who actually should be guiding the care, rather than the physician or psychologist saying, I wonder why this individual is having this powerful experience. Can I build a therapeutic alliance with this person to understand better? Can we do anything to preserve the integrity of this person's sexual body that they may regret a, a completely irreversible, incredibly serious and very fringe amputation of, of a body part. I mean, where is the curiosity about it? And I guess if you're coming from the perspective of this is a group you never hear from, this is a group with a lot of stigma, this is a group who's misunderstood, we need to listen to their voices, I can totally see how a, a, a clinician who's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and really wants to do the right thing might say, oh my God, it's true. I did judge this person right off the bat. I did assume that this person was mentally ill or crazy. I have been judgmental and that is bad. It's kind of like when we talked with, was it Lior Sapir who was saying like the number one value right now is non-judgmentalism or something yeah, like, he did and it's that. true when, when you, when you inject that concept in, you totally understand how W path can put an entire chapter like this in and still stand with the confidence of a true authority figure saying, actually, this is the way of the future. And I mean, I tweeted about this. It's like in this presentation, I guess we're just going there. I'm, I'm on the Unix now. So <laughs> we've jumped out of order, but <laughs> in the presentation, there, there's more, but it's yeah, just, I think it's, it's, it's the one issue that demonstrates to me so clearly that they are asking physicians, clinicians, therapists, doctors, anyone who interacts with this document to really put aside any of their own opinions or discomfort or ethical qualms that they have because they need to be more open-minded, less judgmental, um, stop relying on your old patriarchal medical views. This is the new way of medicine, and this is consumer-based care. This is give the patient what he wants, regardless of if there's any scientific basis behind it, regardless of if it even makes sense, regardless of if there's serious trauma that could be contributing, give the patient what they want. And it just, it just feels so obvious that they are asking people, providers, to force themselves to get comfortable with something that viscerally sits really badly with them. And in, in the question and answer portion of that particular talk about the Unix chapter that came up where a person raised their hand and said, you know, if I have a patient with a history of, you know, really serious self-inflicted sadomasochism or something like that. Yes. How can I, how can I square their desires for self-castration? And he said, you know, 
Um, I would have to pull up the exact quote, but he said something like, you know, if you're not familiar with this population, you might tell yourself, like, this person seems like to be outside of the scope of my competence, but really we're asking you to expose yourself more and more to patients like this so you can become more comfortable with these procedures. Frightening. And, you know, I want to read out the, you know, from the glossary, the glossary in itself is a read, but what they say when, because I think, you know, people are talking about eunuch, but we forget what a eunuch is because it's an outdated, you know, it's from, from the past. It's an individual assigned male at birth whose testicles have been surgically removed. This is a quote from WPATH or rendered non-functional and who identifies as a eunuch. This differs from the standard medical definition by excluding those who do not identify as eunuchs. And then they have, carrying on their very kind of ideological language, they give a glossary for eunuch identified. And they talk about this eunuch who is identified as a eunuch. And that's in their glossary of this standards of care. And they say this is an individual, I'm quoting, who feels their true self is best expressed by the term eunuch. Eunuch identified individuals generally desire to have their reproductive organs surgically removed or rendered non-functional. And, you know, that's all fine if they want to be this fringe organization with fringe ideas and these kind of very kind of unusual people. Because I personally believe in a free society who want to do these things. That's personally, if, if they want to do that, that's fine. Don't have doctors and clinicians and people who've signed up to ethical care, who have been signed up, who are, are really in positions of not only positions of responsibility, but very well-paid positions of responsibility, tick off on that. 119 people signed the standards of care, 119 people, and some of them are clinicians and doctors. And it, it's unbelievable some of the things that are in this document. So once somebody from now on, I think, who, who kind of quotes WPATH at me, for me, they are immediately rendered a not serious person who doesn't know their stuff because you couldn't quote this and say, I am somebody who's an ethical clinician who follows my ethical guidelines of my organisation. You couldn't be, not with that sort of definitions. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast we work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. I feel like we have just, we're in such an upside down topsy-turvy land as it is that it's very hard actually to get your bearings. Yeah. It's really complicated stuff. These are very, um, I guess, unusual, unsettling and in some ways, just viscerally, I'm just going to say, they're very disturbing things to think about. A person who has something going on that is so profound that they want to remove their genitals. It's just viscerally difficult to think about. And in the standards of care, they say, like, if you don't assist with these procedures, they might do it to themselves. You know, I kept thinking as I read through the document about what about harm reduction? What about you know, do no harm. And how do you define that? And I guess 
if I'm trying to get in the mindset of a, somebody who ticked off on WPATH standards of care, they might say, well, what is a greater harm? A person self, attempting to self-castrate or having a doctor do it? And I say, well, there are a lot of other options in between. I mean, that's yeah. why I feel like as a therapist, I was reading a document that is just literally sitting in a totally different kind of worldview from myself. That's not how I think about the world. I don't think about people as a series of medical transactions that they either want to do and do themselves or want to do and have a doctor do safely. I mean, that's there's a lot of other options in between. So I think it's just uh, the entire kind of perspective from which it's written does not feel clinical whatsoever. It feels very atomized. It does feel atomized, but it, it feels very consumer driven. One thing that was really quite shocking for me reading it was the feeling of there was almost a shopping list of for example, surgical interventions people could use. Now, these this this was detailed about the lips and the face and the nose and the brow and the and it, it felt read to me like a cosmetic surgery shopping list, but it was written in a way that these are as you said to me. Every time you turned around, it was medically what what's the phrase medically necessary? Yeah, we should yeah. touch on that. Mm. Because what what they did was do what it felt like body modifications, an awful lot of them. And every time they did, they would say, and this is this medically necessary, or they would presume it's medically necessary, or there'd be a reference to medical necessity. And you have to stop and think, says who? What do you mean it's medically necessary? What 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 does that concept actually mean? Because it is not medically necessary to have facial feminization surgery. It, it it isn't, but somebody could argue conceptually that they think it is, but that's not how it's phrased in this document, and that's what's so disarming and discombobulating about the document. Yeah, I mean, I can read that. Maybe this would be worth talking about because throughout the entire document, it references medical necessity and it says go back to the clause in chapter two, right? And so in chapter two, they say medical necessity is a term common to healthcare coverage and insurance policies globally. Okay, that's where we need to start. This is so that it's covered by insurance. This is not medically necessary for a person to enjoy the most robust quality of life possible given the condition they have. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about insurance coverage. But a common definition of medical necessity as used by insurance is healthcare services that a physician or professional exercising prudent clinical judgment would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, evaluating, diagnosing, or treating an illness, disease, or its symptoms that are in accordance with the generally accepted standards of practice or clinically appropriate in terms of frequency, extent, site and duration, and cost effectiveness, uh, and not primarily for the convenience of the patient or physician or other healthcare provider, and not more costly than an alternative service or sequence of services. And it goes on from there. So I think that that letter C was very interesting because it's not just for the convenience of the patient, and it's not um, a more costly version of something cheaper you could do. And I mean, you and I have talked about this, and this is a phrase I use frequently throughout my explanation of the work I do, least invasive first. Yeah. But actually, yeah. none of these, you know, having a, a tracheal shave is not the least invasive first procedure. 
And, you know, we haven't even started yet and we will go to it. They took away all the minimum age requirements, well, nearly all of them. But before we go to that, I want to point out what you and I were speaking about earlier, which was, you know, as as WPATH launched Standards of Care 8, they had their annual conference. And Amy Tishelman, who, who introduced herself as the lead author of the child chapter in these guidelines, she 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 speaks about the um the the kind of the fact that they don't want doctors to face malpractice lawsuits. So they wrote these guidelines specifically with that in mind. And I'll quote her here. She says, we were thinking, and it was scary for me, about the potential uses of the chapter for legal and insurance contexts. What we didn't want to do was create a chapter that would make it more likely that practitioners would be sued because they weren't following exactly what we said. And so she then goes on to say, we wanted there to be some clinician judgment without being at risk for being held in court for not sticking completely to these standards. So we did write them in a way, I think, that there is leeway, that we recommend things, but we suggest that clinicians use their judgment about what to do in therapy situations and assessment situations so that they can use individualised clinical judgment and not face malpractice suits. So she said that in the conference, and this is what's extraordinary about this is that it's 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 hiding in plain sight, and for me it's it's incredibly arrogant. This is an echo chamber where everybody's nodding along, saying, "Yeah, watch your language, use language so that you kind of kind of swerve the malpractice suits, which will inevitably come from these irreversible surgeries from which we've removed all minimum age requirements." Like it's it's jaw dropping. We're talking about children who can get mastectomies with no minimum age, vaginoplasties, orchiectomies. There's it's extraordinary what she's actually talking about when she's talking about these malpractice suits that they're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And she goes on later to say in that talk something about making sure it's still covered by insurance. So she says, like, we don't want to be vague enough that the insurance companies don't think they're necessary. So they are necessary, but they're completely up to up to interpretation. I mean, it, it, you just see it fall apart. I mean, the House of Cards metaphor is just so apt here. You just you're seeing it fall apart, like talking out of two sides of your mouth and trying to make completely opposite things square with each other. So she says, on the other hand, we didn't want it to be so loose that insurance wouldn't cover things because they'll say they're not necessary. We tried to bridge those considerations. We didn't want overly general general standards that would dilute their meaning and importance. So they really were very clearly driven by a consumerist. As I said, they might as well have been selling cars or something. They were they were talking about how to get the most clients in without getting sued with with getting insurance. I remember I said that between 1981 and 2014, the Medicaid, I think that's key. I don't think enough is really made of that. And I think that the the fact that it is now covered, they want to make sure they keep that coverage. So they're using medically necessary, medically necessary in their snazzy um, document. And it seems to be enough to tick the boxes. It, it's It's a frightening kind of reflection of consumer-based healthcare, where we always knew like consumer-based healthcare was coming because I'm over in Ireland, so it's not consumer-based healthcare, nothing like in America. But I always knew, you know, it's coming and it's completely infiltrated. And then I actually see it in live. It's like, oh my God. So if if you live in a world where basically if it can be paid for, you'll get it, 
anything can happen. Yeah, really. that's right. And yeah. I mean, there's talk of de-psychopathologization and like a more rights-based approach. Those are also quotes from the, the document. So it's like, this is a beautiful recipe in a way for all of this to go off the deep end. And you combine the kind of insurance coverage piece with the consumer-based uh, medical piece with the depathologization and the way people proudly kind of wear their diagnoses, but it's not really a diagnosis, but it is, but it's not, but it is, but it's not like all of that kind of really sets us up. So I think we should, I, I think we should touch on the uh, specifics of some other chapters as well. But yes, what were you going to say? Well, I want to jump in. I do want to hear what you've got to say about the non-binary chapter because I know you've studied that. But what I want to jump in is because it's kind of hilarious. We're, we're so far into this and we still haven't talked about the correction that wasn't a correction. The correction that yes. got corrected and then got dumped and then got silenced and kind of edited out. So, you know, they released it and it's all very kind of difficult to figure out when they released it and what date they released it. And they have appeared to release it saying one date, but they actually released it later than that. Certainly, we definitely know, because there's an awful lot of attention on this uh, document, that they released it and then very quickly corrected it. And when they first released it, they had minimum age requirements for a, for a range of surgical interventions. This is very much based on the children. And when we look at the soaring figures, this really matters. And so for the children, they had kind of minimum age requirements. For example, they said they they in the original document, 14 years plus for cross-sex hormones, 15 years plus for double mastectomies, 16 years plus for breast implants, facial feminization surgery, etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying that's good. I personally think it's way too, too uh, young and I don't think it's appropriate. But again, in a massive reflection of this is about malpractice and insurance, they didn't want to be so specific. And so they jumped in now, this is supposed to be a document that was that was kind of written by 119 people with an awful lot of kind of... For years. Oh, They've years. been writing it for years. A policy document that has been laboured over for years and every word has been studied backwards. And yourself and myself are in, involved in one, the writing of something like that. It is no word is put in without a massive amount of thought. And yet, you know, a very short time, within hours effectively of releasing, they suddenly decided, oh, no, take out all those minimum age requirements. It's so slapdash, sloppy and reflective of a, a disreputable organisation. It's like you can't you can't say you worked for years over this and then suddenly say, slap your forehead and say, take out those minimum age requirements. <laughs> that that makes you a non-serious document and organisation immediately. It, it absolutely discredits the organization that they did that and they did they took it out and then they seem to have done some sort of strange cover-up where they're they've taken out the even though everybody has actually the bmj and medscape reported on it and then they still removed the kind of reference to the correction kind of hoping that we would kind of stop wouldn't notice yeah but mm -hmm. you know what in fairness very often an awful lot of things have happened you and i have experienced with gender that seems so outrageous and egregious that everything is going to stop and they just roll over just keeps going so they're kind of used to that so that's the minimum age requirements it's it's not it was not a correction it was an ideological turnaround 
and it refer it suggests that they are there was huge internal wrangling and again i think activists came in or certainly politically minded people came in talking about um malpractice and insurance legal legally minded like it yeah. very much feels like a lawyer lawyer language because there it's vague enough to where nobody could really get pinned down for doing the wrong thing yeah and then yeah. you have Eli Coleman, who's the first author, and he said, um, what did he say? I'll get it up here. But he basically said that he wasn't involved. He said, this is a quote. This is from the BMJ, the British Medical Journal. And he, he is the first um, author of Standards of Care 8, and he's the co-chair. Um, and he said, as the first author, I did not authorise that correction to be published. And so you're kind of thinking... Wow. Who did? Because I was thinking in a matter of hours, how the hell did they get 119 people to sign off on that? And it turns out they they didn't seem to. And then another guy who is a uh, the the I shouldn't call him a guy. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh. E. K. Edmiston. He's a member of the of the SOC Eight Committee on Adult Care. And in a in a pro- protected tweet, he said that the final changes were the result of quoting a concerted effort on the part of a group of trans authors on the SOC Eight to eliminate the arbitrary age requirements. So. Political will won the day. That wasn't clinical care mm-hmm. considerations. Yeah. So as of now, there are no there are no kind of age recommendations for anything. There is one, I think, for phalloplasty that was kept in for, for mm, age yeah, eighteen, yeah. eighteen and up. And they say that um, medical intervention is not recommended for children. So the children's chapter just talks really about social transition. And preparation for medical intervention should should the family decide to do it as the child ages up. But they do say as well that there's no requirement for hormones before surgery, which is shocking. That's consumer care. You, you know what I mean? Like you don't need to you don't need to remember they don't you don't need to live as the opposite sex. That they got away with that years ago. They got you know, got rid of that. Now they've got rid of the idea that you'd have hormones, you go straight for, for surgical intervention. But in that chapter, I noticed around the children, they said they talked about and, the, you know, the ideological language is very off-putting. For example, they talk about chest masculization surgery, mm-hmm. which I found, you know, inappropriate, frankly. But they talk about breast binding and genital tucking and they they suggest, they recommend the clinicians advise this, even though this has been studied as as causing a lot of distress and and health implications there's a lot of negative health implications around binding and they say uh yeah you you know make sure that children understand that to avoid misgendering that's a quote and to and to have comfort that you should kind of basically school them these clinicians should school them in the correct use of binding and tucking when frankly this is a a very controversial intervention in the first place. So Stella, after you said that bit about not requiring any kind of hormonal intervention, I looked it up because I remember reading something about that. And reading through this really just highlights this confusing language that is used. So it says, in statement 6.12.G, the adolescent had at least 12 months of gender-affirming hormone therapy or longer 
if required, to achieve the desired surgical result for gender-affirming procedures, including breast augmentation, orchiectomy, vaginoplasty, hysterectomy, phalloplasty, metoidioplasty, and facial surgery as part of gender-affirming treatment, unless hormone therapy is either not desired or is medically contraindicated. So again, it's like, it's necessary unless it's not. They need it unless they don't. If it's not desired, they don't need it. So it's like, that is exactly... Desire is synonymous with need in this whole document, right? Point. But that is, writ, you know, really kind of highlighting exactly what Amy Tishelman's conference was saying. You say, you know, speaking at two sides of your mouth, running with the hares and hunting with the hounds, you're doing both. You know, you're, we're recommending 12 months of hormone, but if it's not desired, we're recommending you don't need it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you, you didn't need to put in 612G because <laughs> it basically contradicts itself. So just yeah. you know, delete. <laughs> you didn't need that. You know, it's so true because reading through this document, it felt like a whole smoke and mirrors show. It, like I was reading through it and by the end of each chapter, I would think to myself, well, they could have just not put anything in that chapter at all. Like the whole, the whole document could just be like a do whatever your client wants. What did you think about the non-binary? Because, you know, you know, years ago, a few years ago, before we had discovered the delights of unicory, we were all about non-binary and that that was such a new concept and a new. Uh, uh, yeah. So tell me. Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting because, of course, they say it is a completely valid gender identity in its own right. Of course, they couldn't define it at all. Um, it's said that uh, non-binary people face provider assumptions that they don't actually need medical treatment. God forbid. You don't need medical treatment. <laughs> You're fine just the way you are. God forbid. And nobody will make any money. <laughs> I know. And have described the ex uh, experiencing some pressure to present themselves as trans men or trans women if they want access to treatment. So I actually, you know, think this is really interesting. And I've heard this from clients like I don't want to do all the things to be a trans man, but I want to be valid in my identity. And actually, I really empathize with clients who are in this position because they're trying to say, like, I want to express this part of myself that I think is non-binary, but I'm being pressured uh, to present more masculine or more feminine. However, I mean, of course, I'm talking about clients who maybe don't want to medicalize themselves. So there are clients here that they're referring to who want to medicalize themselves, but they the providers feel suspicious that this is not going to be a good idea, given that they identify as non-binary and not particularly masculine or feminine. And I mean, here I can really see, I remember talking in the Pioneer series about how, you know, back in the day, clinicians used to look at a person who wanted to transition and if they didn't think they'd pass well, they would, you know, recommend they not transition. So I can see the, the remnants of that kind of philosophy here, but, um, you know, it says that, um, in contexts where a medical intervention doesn't have established precedent, it's important that before the intervention is considered, the provider 
the individual is provided with an overview of available information. So that I think is a reference to things like nullification surgery. Like this is an, a new procedure that's never really been done before. And they talk about how, um, you know, if a, a client wants or a medical patient, let's say, wants a certain procedure, they need to be notified about what will happen. So it says, um, uh, a non-binary person seeking some of these other changes associated with estrogen therapy, for example, such as softening of the skin and reduction of hair growth, but who does not want or is ambivalent about breast growth needs to know that breast growth is still highly variable. So this is a kind of the mix and match, right? The like, I want a bit, bit yeah. of this, but not this. And I gather, you know, you, you know, this is the new way of thinking. These are the digital generation who are genuinely just thinking it's a bit of this and a bit of that. I think I want, you know, maybe this type of brow and this type of lips and, and it's, 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 and it's called under gender, but it's actually body, body modification. And it, it feels a long way from gender dysphoria. It feels like it could, it could be a whole new concept, really. What's going on? And it's, it's shocking that that's still thought of as medically necessary. To me, it seems completely like a designer appearance. There you go. Yeah. We haven't even touched on adolescents and children. Of course, we talked about the age requirements, which are probably the most important aspect of the adolescent chapter. Is there anything else in there that you wanted to touch on? Because I, I highlighted a few things. Yeah, th there was a couple of things, I suppose, um, uh, well, do, you tell me about the child okay. and adolescent because I have a couple of other points I want to get in at the end before we finish. Okay. In adolescence, they acknowledge that risk-taking behaviors and a sense of urgency and the importance of peers all become really important. But they also just simply state, like, as a matter of fact, that, well, there's more gender diversity than we once thought. They don't acknowledge that that risk-taking peer importance and urgency could have anything to do with the, like, soaring numbers of FTMs that we now are seeing. Um, and that trans identity is sometimes very surprising to the loved ones because they do not have a fixed uh, an early sense of gender identity. And in the child chapter, they, of course, talked about that consistent, persistent, insistent. It's interesting because they insisted many times that you can't tell what's going to happen with a kid's identity, right? They acknowledge that we don't have a crystal ball, but they did talk about insistent, consistent, and persistent. And they didn't seem to consider that social transition could actually create a fixing of the gender identity. So they, they kept saying we should not privilege any particular outcome over the other, but they also said that you should never, ever, ever encourage a child to reconcile with their sex and that doing nothing is actually not neutral. So it's it's interesting. It's like they're privileging trans identity over cis identity 100% of the way, but they're saying we should not privilege one outcome over the other. But it's obvious that they are privileging trans identity over a cis identity, whatever that uh, is supposed to mean. Privileging uh, gender affirmation over body affirmation. And so, right. you, you, you know what I mean? So they are privileging, but they say they're not, which is, you know, it's it's worth, it's, Clever words like that, which has got us into an awful lot of trouble. Um, I, I do want to say before we finish um, two things. You know, when we were talking about the eunuchs, and I know we talked quite a bit about it, but we we forgot to mention the fact that they do um, they do include a reference to a website called the Eunuch Archive, 
And the Unic Archive is really, really inappropriate website, which includes graphic and sexually explicit fictional descriptions of child eunuchs. And it is, again, they go back to these are the most marginalized, stigmatized communities in the world. And, um, you know, we really need to look after them. But what they're actually talking about is saying if we don't treat these people, they'll harm themselves. And also, here's an here's a reference to, you know, what I would, you know, yourself and myself read a, a few of these kind of stories from the Unic Archive, and they're really quite statistic, sadistic and quite, um, I suppose, inappropriate doesn't cover the word, but they're they're really, really shocking reference. To put that in again is either arrogance or echo chamber. I'm not sure which, but to include that in a standards of care or a self-identified standards of care was pretty shocking. But to finish, I'd like us to just rest a little bit on how badly they treated detransitioners in this document. their, Their glossary definition was offensive Almost everything I found was offensive for the transitioners in this document. And I saw that Pablo Esposito Campos, he almost immediately came out and said, you know, WPATH have misinterpreted my work. And um, he said, um, WPATH is very biased against transition as a possible outcome, against detransition as a possible outcome. And he said they completely misinterpreted his own work. And not only that, they they have an incorrect definition of detransition. And I thought that was very um, inappropriate. They say detransition in their glossary is a term sometimes used to describe an individual's retransition to the gender stereotypically associated with their sex assigned at birth. I just think that's disgraceful. Effectively, you're, you're identifying as your sex assigned at birth rather than going through the most harrowing, devastating experience of maybe your life because of identifying as different identities. Yeah, what I find really fascinating about it and really horrifying is the word not fascinating is that they want so badly to bend over backwards to make room for everybody's personal definition of gender and their identity and how they see things and how they conceptualize this or that thing. But they refuse to acknowledge that detransitioners feel genuinely duped and harmed and they're not re-identifying with their sex assigned at birth, that they are like, actually, this whole thing was a lie. Yeah. Many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. And I just find it so... uh, It's so indicative of the ideological bent of this whole document that they don't say these are individuals who felt very harmed by the concepts that they that that we basically advocate for in this entire document. Yeah. It's really glib and it's really dismissive. And you know, they they even go on later to say cuz they use the word retransition in that definition of detransition and they say retransition refers to a second or subsequent gender transition whether by social, medical, or legal means, maybe from one binary to non-binary gender or another binary or non-binary gender. People may retransition more than once. Like, they, they treat this as though it's a completely neutral thing that has no bearing whatsoever on a person's 
physical well-being, psychological well-being, emotional, psychological, social well-being. I mean, as though these things are just like, oh, I just put on a white shirt today and tomorrow I'll put on a green mm -hmm. shirt. I mean, it feels like that casual. It negates the entire detransition, which is well catalogued now. Every time I turn around, there's a detransitioner speaking and talking about how awful the whole experience was. It absolutely negates it because they act as if it's just part of the experience. And then they go back to that old trope about stigmatization and how, you know, the difficulties of accessing health care. And they, they go back to that sort of reasoning around detransition. They don't say it's only that, but they certainly bring that in. And they they, they have a, a, a kind of, it feels like a lighthearted, rather than, for example, having a chapter on ethics, which would make it a more serious document, having a chapter on detransition and saying detransition is where we need to pause and reflect on how to improve this phenomenon. That's what that that whole chapter, which doesn't exist. They don't have a chapter on ethics and they don't have to have a chapter on detransition. But there should be a chapter on ethics and there should be a chapter. If it was a clinical guide, there would be. And uh, where everybody has a think and thinks, how do we reduce the number of detransitioners? How do we make sure that we don't transition people who will later regret it? And you could say, well, that's impossible. And I would I would you know, there's something in that. But certainly you could massively reduce some of the stories from the detransitioners. They were not given good care and they were not given good care because of this flimsy, flimsy, badly thought out guidelines that th this, frankly, crowd. And, and the affirmative care model. I mean, yeah. that is at the root of all of this. Yeah. If if you everything about provide this. practice based on the idea that you have to affirm a person's stated identity, then, of course, you're going to have these horrific detransition experiences. And it shouldn't be called the affirmative care model. It should be called the consumer-driven model. You know what I mean? Whatever the client wants, the client gets because they, they pay for it. And there is Desire-driven model. Yeah, desire-driven model because there isn't any kind of significant clinical guidelines. There's no ethical considerations. There's no, no pausing on maybe we should first do no harm. No, no, no. If you desire it, we recommend 12 months hormone, but if you desire it, don't worry about it. Yeah. Stella, there there was a lot here. I have pages more of notes of things that I think we could talk about. Um, I would be curious if our listeners would be interested, but I would be open to revisiting this again, because mm -hmm. I think this is a really important document and there's much to say. What do you think? Do you think listeners would be interested in more WPATH SOC8 talk? I don't know. I'd be delighted to hear because I know we have very, uh, very educated, informed listeners who tell us exactly. They come up with some amazing points. Yeah. They always make me pause to reflect. I'd be certainly open. I seemed, it seems to have lit a flame in myself and many other people, this document, because it's so egregious. So, yeah, I could talk about it. I have months in me. Same. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. 
Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 